Hi everyone. Welcome to the Live Longer World podcast. I am your host Aastha Jain. On this podcast, I have conversations with scientists and entrepreneurs that are transforming the field of longevity science. If you wish to stay notified of upcoming podcast releases and sign up for my newsletter, head over to livelongerworld.com. And if you want to receive extensive show notes and transcripts from each episode, you can sign up to be a premium member at livelongerworld.com forward slash premium. My guest today is Dr. Brian Kennedy, who is the director for the Center of Healthy Aging at the National University of Singapore. He's also the former president and CEO of the Buck Institute of Research on Aging. His lab currently is working on different small molecules and natural products that could boost longevity and intervene in the aging process. So in today's discussion we spoke about the network concept of the hallmarks of aging. We spoke about combining different longevity interventions like AKG, spermidine, urolithin A, what we can learn from the exceptional longevity of bats. That's right. And why basic science is important. So I hope you enjoy this extensive discussion with Professor Brian Kennedy. So hi Professor Kennedy and welcome to the Live Longer World show. Hi, it's nice to be here. Awesome. So I think one of the reasons you got interested in longevity was because both your grandmothers lived to be over 100 if I'm not mistaken. Um I'm curious I wanted to ask you is there something they were doing differently or were they just blessed with centenary longevity genes if you recall from memory? Well, one of them lived to 99 and the other one 101. So the average was 100. <laughs> um <laughs> I think the uh It, there are different stories for each of them and i used my two grandmothers to illustrate the difference between health span and life span you know uh, they both had a long life span but my one grandmother my mother's mother had a very long health span as well so she was living alone at a, um up until 4 months before she died and uh she was driving a car in her 90s and still having good bowling scores and all of that um and was pretty happy throughout her life didn't have a lot of medical issues Uh my other grandmother went at about 60 she went to the doctor and the doctor said you're probably not going to live five more years because you already have all these things wrong with you but she had one thing going for her which is stubbornness nobody <laughs> was going to tell her she was going to die and so uh she outlived uh, two or three of those doctors and uh she was never particularly healthy but uh she was always mentally acute up until maybe the last four or five years and, but um Yeah, so I think they had different strategies. One of them has the the long health span and I think that's what I'm looking for. And uh the other one is uh didn't have a long health span, but you know, she still found a way to get by and 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 be happy, I think. Uh and I'm really hoping it's all about genetics. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> Yep, yeah, yeah, you'll be blessed with those genes then hopefully. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, um 99 or 100 with a health span and a long life span as well. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, you, that's what we want. Compressed morbidity and and long life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um so you've also spoken about the network concept of the hallmarks of aging, the fact that they're all interconnected. Um yeah. can you speak a bit to that? Well, I think that it it it's not something that just came conceptually to me. It came from looking at the interventions that extend lifespan. And so, I think a lot of us had the idea that one, you know, we found a lot of these drugs and 
genetic modifications almost randomly in screens. And so we didn't know what they were doing. And then we set about trying to figure out the mechanism of action of many of these drugs. And what we found out is, I think the idea was that, well, figure out which hallmark or pillar of aging that each of these drugs hits. And then once we know that, we can combine them and get even bigger effects. And the problem was if you take something like rapamycin or metformin or NAD activated, whatever you want, they tend to improve all the hallmarks. And so then you have to ask the question, why are they doing all these different things related to aging? And that led me to think of the idea that really, you know, these are just readouts on a system that is in your body to try to keep you healthy. And it's not there to make you live forever. It's there to keep you healthy as long as possible, especially during your reproductive years. And so things are happening even from birth, uh, to your body and but this sort of network can compensate for that and uh, emphasize keeping you healthy disease-free highly functional and when you have enough things happen though and that could be damage to dna or other macromolecules it could be you know envir other environmental factors lots of things happening um, then eventually the network starts to break down and when that network breaks down that's when you become susceptible to disease. And when you add that to whatever your individual chronic disease susceptibility is, you get diabetes or Alzheimer's or, you know, or cancer or some combination. And so, it, but as long as that network's functioning, I think you pretty much can resist most of those chronic diseases. And so um, what I think these interventions are doing are really hitting nodes in this network, like mTOR is a node. It, the mTOR signaling, it senses nutrients, it senses stress, it senses lots of different things, and then it has lots of different readouts, uh, autophagy, protein synthesis, cell cycle, mitochondrial function, and so it can integrate all of those signals, and it's a node in this health network, um, or health span network, and I think that we didn't know at the time, but a lot of these interventions fall into that category. And you think that a lot of the nodes are probably interconnected, so the readouts also just end up being similar or somewhat meshed together then? Yeah, I think so. I'm not saying there's not a hierarchy to hallmarks or pillars of aging. A lot of people are thinking about that, but I think mm -hmm. that a lot of the interventions that can, I mean, think about it, aging is a complex process, right? So how can one drug or one genetic modification have a big effect on, on longevity and health span? That's what everybody said when I started in the field. We're never going to find a dr one drug that slows aging. But I think it turns out it's going to be easier to do that than it is to treat the chronic diseases after they happen because you've got this network in place and all you have to do is tweak that network and make it function a little bit better. Whereas if you look at a chronic disease like Alzheimer's, a lot of things have gone wrong by the time those people are symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to take everything from disorganization back to organization. And that's, I think, a much more difficult endeavor. Absolutely. On that point, um, I guess, what are some other open questions you have on the hallmarks of aging or that are being studied? Hierarchy is one that you mentioned. Yeah, I th we're trying to think about this right now because we're going to write another review on sort of where have we come in the last eight years. I mean, those two papers, one on the hallmarks by Lopez Oten and colleagues, and then a, a bunch of uh, other professors and I wrote the pillars of aging. Uh, and um, they, I think they they both been cited a lot. And I think they really helped the field um, move forward, especially the private sector, because it really gave targets for the private sector to go after and companies that could be started. Uh, the other big, I think, 
thing that happened was the invention of biomarkers of aging or mm -hmm. i mean they were the concept of biomarkers of aging has been around forever but it's only in the last 10 or 15 years that reasonable candidates have come along uh and so uh you put those two things together and the private sector got interested but i think the question is how do we go from there and um, we need to understand how this system is put together a little bit better because what we'd like to do is figure out how to combine different things to have even bigger effects. Um, so, uh, you know, you might take rapamycin and alpha-ketoglutarate or something like that. Uh, but right now, we can't predict what these combinations do. And, you know, I've got a lot of mouse data that we added uh, compound A and compound B and got nothing <laughs> or compound b canceled out the effects of compound a and i can't predict why that's happening uh, some things are also additive but you know now we're in a world where you have all these people that are sort of early adopters who are out there taking every supplement they can find and i can't even predict what two things are going to do in a mouse much less 10 things in a human and so i think that we really need to understand this this network concept better and it's kind of problematic because, you know, and I'm just reading a book on Schrodinger and uh, physics. And, you know, that's one of the points where the physics went from something we could understand to something we can't understand. It doesn't, you know, it was a big advance mm -hmm. quantum mechanics, but, it, but the human brain doesn't, it doesn't fit well in the human brain. And I think, you know, a network that's keeping you healthy or a health span network is a little bit hard to understand too. I mean, what what is it composed of? How does some of it's happening in some tissues and some of it's happening in other tissues? How does our communication? What do we mean when we say network? And I think our brains have trouble wrapping our you know you know our you know I grew up in a world where everything was pathways and epistasis, and now you know everything is spaghetti, and so it's it's a little bit of a challenge to to figure out what that means and and and. You know, I, I would add that I think when I started in the aging field, most people, and that was uh, around 1990, <coughs> uh, I think that uh, most people would have said, oh, well, well, by 2020, we'll understand a lot about aging, but we probably, I don't know if we'll have any interventions that really work in humans. And I think that it turns out we have interventions that are likely to work in humans, but we still don't understand a lot about aging. And so... Um, I, I think we have to we have to think about it in a different way, and, and you know that that's why I think AI is so promising because it can take a lot of complex data and generate predictions out of it. It's not the most satisfying thing in the world because it just spits out an answer that you then you don't understand the answer. But at least you know maybe that kind of large data analysis is what's going to really break things open because. Um, Right now, I, if somebody asked me what causes aging, I, I can, you know, I'm a professor. I know how to fake answers, but I'm not sure I know the real answer No, those are some really good points. I, I envision if we can actually get to this answer, what causes aging, or drop some map of the networks or the different yeah. nodes of aging, and then maybe AI or big data can just come along and point that, well, this intervention will hit this node, which can have an effect on this pathway and and so forth. Yeah, I think it's also important because we need to get the personalization of aging. We know people age, there are common things about how everyone ages, but there are also <laughs> unique features in, in individuals. And right now, I mean, one might argue that some of those 
uh, hallmarks of aging are accelerated in some individuals and others in other people. That's one hypothesis. But uh, we really don't know how to measure that and interpret that. And I think that if we're going to personalize interventions, we have to you know, understand what the individual targets are that we're going after. Right now, we're still speculating. There's a lot of longevity clinics out there doing, trying to do this. And I, I'm fine with that. You know, if people want to be early adopters and go to these clinics, as long as the clinic isn't killing people, you know, I think it's okay. Uh, I, I think that the, the world is we're in right now is a lot of people think we can do good things for aging. And if, as long as you're honest with the consumers, you know, and they're willing to, you know, take the risk at this point, then that's fine. And so, but at the same time, I'm not sure what personalized aging interventions mean. I mean, I think most clinics interpret that as looking at disease risk. So or you have a high glucose and so you have a risk of diabetes. So we're going to do metformin and, you know, but um, I'm not sure that's really targeting the aging pathways in a personalized way. Which probably goes back to biomarkers, I would think. And because uh, I guess a lot of the longevity clinics are trying to use different biomarkers or mm. biological age tests or other functional measures to track it. And I think in, in you also have a 2020 review where you wrote, wrote about these biomarkers from aging functional yeah. tests to multi-omics approaches. Um, can you speak to, I guess, how you think of biomarkers in the field? What are some other open questions and maybe how some of these compare to each other? Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about them. We're using them in our studies at NUS. So we're doing uh, clinical intervention studies, looking at uh, potential longevity interventions in people in you know, 45 to 65, so at risk of disease, but not yet having multimorbidity. Uh, and then we're really using the, these biomarkers as endpoints. Um, so maybe six to nine month interventions and can you turn back the methylation clock or some other biomarker? Um, Right now, we're choosing to use a number of different biomarkers together uh, because I think the one question is we don't know how they interact with each other. They all have some, you know, the pr first principal component to all of them is aging and they were designed that way, so that's not particularly surprising. But if you extract the aging component and ask what's the correlation between these biomarkers at that point, uh, then it becomes there is a correlation, but not a huge one. And so then the question is, do we need five different kinds of biomarkers and somehow integrate those numbers to get a true biologic age? Or can we just use these two or is this one sufficient? And right now, I don't think there's enough data on that. Um, so yeah. we want to link interventions to individual biomarkers to physiologic outcomes. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited that you're testing the different biomarkers along with the AKG studies as well. Because I think just one example is that what say I guess methylation clocks don't pick up senescence, so that's like one, two different, yeah, tracking yeah, biomarkers. What, that, you know, that's that's a theory out there right now, and uh, you know, I think that we we don't completely understand that yet. And I, one of the one of the some of the science I really like is by Morgan Levine, you know, because she's taken mm -hmm. all these biologic aging clocks, these methylation clocks, and she's working backwards to aging pathways. And so we can figure out why, you know, these 15 methylation sites tell you something about aging or these hundred or whatever the, whatever the clock you're using. Uh, and I think that's critical because if we can connect up those sort of AI driven biomarkers that spit numbers out and figure out the components in that clock that are linked to the 
hallmarks or pillars of aging, then that's a big step forward. I couldn't agree more. I had her on the podcast and it was it was yeah. amazing talking to her. She was talking all about her systems age clock and deconstructing these epigenetic yeah. clocks to go back to the root. Um, yeah. So you mentioned important. conducting some clinical studies, which is, I believe, using AKG, and you also in your lab study a few other molecules, including spermidine and urolithin A, yeah. which I want to get to as well. Uh, but maybe starting with AKG, uh, what is it first, and what role does it play in humans? Okay, before I answer that, let me qualify one thing. Our clinical studies are really trying to be agnostic, so our plans are to test five or different five to ten different interventions and compare and contrast which ones work with which biomarkers. So um, we're starting with AKG, and there's a little bit of a, a bias to that, obviously, because I work on it. But the main reason we chose AKG is because it's extremely safe. There have been clinical studies with people taking 10 times as much as we're going to use in the clinical trial without any adverse events. And so we're working with healthy people here. We're not, we're not stealing people out of the hospital. We're getting them out of the community. And so I think we need to be cautious about uh, doing things that have low risk profiles. Now, mm -hmm. I will say, having said that, we're going to test a Rapalog too, because um, it's been shown that you can deliver Rapalogs in a, in a safe way uh, and to healthy individuals, at least. And uh, we, I really think that targeting mTOR is still the gold standard, which may be part of what AKG is doing as well. Um, Coming back to AKG, you know, we got into this because of a, a company, uh, PDL Health, uh, sponsored research at the Buck Institute when I was there with Gordon Lithgow's lab and my lab to try to find combinations of natural products that have additive or synergistic effects on health span and lifespan. And so Gordon screened a lot of things in worms, and then we started doing mouse studies. And, um, and a product has come out of that called Rejuvent, which has AKG plus a low-dose vitamin A for males and low-dose vitamin D for females. But a lot of the effect comes from AKG. Uh, I'm interested in, in AKG these days. Um, it's a TCA cycle component, so your body makes a ton of it and uses a ton of it very quickly. If you put it in the bloodstream, it goes, it's like NAD. It goes up and down really fast because it's used in hundreds of different enzymatic reactions. Um, that also makes it a nightmare, by the way, when you're trying to figure out the mechanism by which it extends <laughs> lifespan. It's another issue. Uh, but AKG levels go down with aging. And um, uh, really, this is a metabolic flexibility molecule because it can interact in all those different reactions. It, it touches on a bunch of different pathways. And again, that may be part of this network concept because the levels of AKG can integrate function of different pathways. So um, we're trying to break this down now and figure out why it's why it's good. In mice, it extended lifespan about 10% and reduced frailty about 50%. Uh, and one human study we just published with the company, so this is, by the way, not a clinically controlled blinded study, so just full disclosure. And also, I'm involved with the company while we're disclosing things. Um, uh, the uh, uh, What we found is about 40-something uh, users that took the product for seven months, we did a baseline methylation test and a follow-up, and they were about seven years younger biologically. Now, am I excited about that? Yes. 
Am I convinced by that? Not completely, because we need to get the clinical data in. And also, I, I'm willing to bet that there's a significant placebo effect um, mm -hmm. in aging. If you think you're younger, either because you behave differently or because thinking you're younger psychologically is enough, I think it probably has a couple, two, three-year effect on biologic age. So um, we need to disentangle that. But I, I'm hope, very hopeful that some of the effect is coming from the rejuvenate product. Yeah, no, that's that's very exciting. Um, I'm curious, do we know why AKG levels decline with age? It's not entirely clear. You know, NAD levels go down with age too. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of these central metabolites that are involved in so many reactions, you know, it's very it's very important for the body to keep the levels of them, you know, balanced. But you know, aging is sort of a you know multi-system failure, right? It's it's like how things fall apart when natural selection doesn't care anymore and I think those might be trigger points, right? These molecules that are used in so many different ways that if some pathway gets turned up because of damage, you consume more AKG and then you don't have enough of it for other things. And, and so it, it may just be that, that these molecules are some, so important because they are the first things that get you know, unbalanced when aging starts to go, starts to go wrong. Interesting. So in the mice studies, I believe you also saw some sex-specific differences, perhaps not huge, but what were they? Yeah, there was a slightly bigger effect in females. And so it, the lifespan effect reached significance in females and didn't quite reach significance in males. Um, the frailty effects were the same. And so I, I think it more or less does the same thing. A higher dose might be better in males. Um, and actually, we need to test higher doses because what we tested was even in mice was a relatively low dose. And as I said, it's been shown that you can give a lot more uh, safely, even in humans. So uh, we want to go back and do a dose response test in mice as well. Maybe there's even bigger effects if we use more. I, I don't know. We don't have any data, but we want to test that. And how does the dosing for this work? Is it every day um, and, and how much is it? typically that what you tested? So it's, um, I can't remember what we use in the mice. Uh, it was more than what we're recommending for the humans. That's commonly true with mice. They tend to have better drug efflux mechanisms. And so the doses are often higher. Um, but we're recommending one gram a day in the human product. That's what's in the human product. Um, uh, and again, there have been studies of up to 20 grams a day in humans that didn't have adverse events so I, I you know so there may be a significant room to get even bigger effects if we go to higher doses but i want to test that in mice first and <laughs> see what yeah. happens yeah. absolutely are the results of any of the clinical studies out yet the six month and the nine no months? we're just getting them started in fact we were about halfway through a, the first study which is really just a cross-sectional study so that's not an intervention it's 450 okay. people singapore as you may know is a an interesting compilation of ethnicities. And so uh, you have uh, Chinese, Han, you have um, Malay, you also have Indian. And uh, especially those latter two ethnicities, we don't know a lot about aging. So the first thing we're doing is taking 150 people uh, and uh, really deeply phenotyping them, uh, looking at as many biomarkers as we can and trying to see which biomarkers work best in those ethnicities. And do we need to tweak the biomarkers to get them to work better? Uh, and so I think that that study is about half done now. Uh, and we'll should be starting interventions within the next couple months. Um, we're already doing one with exercise, actually. But 
Um, that, uh, but I, we, with the small molecule interventions, we should be starting soon. Interesting. I, I, I would be very curious to know what the differences across just ethnicities and different cultures are with aging biomarkers and also how interventions impact different uh, yeah, I think that's, we don't completely know. I mean, you can extract a lot of Asian data from large West Western studies because there are a lot of, a lot of uh, Chinese people there, but it's a lot harder to do that, especially with Malay. So, um, you know, I, 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 I think that um, there are going to be differences in aging between the ethnicities. And the question is whether that's a socioeconomic function or whether that's a biologic function or a, lifestyle function i mean the the diet is very different and so singapore is interesting because you have a the same small well it's a big city but it's a city the same city you know having high levels of these three different ethnicities and, and uh, they people live together they're not like even dispersed in different areas of the city so um it, it's a really good controlled experiment in that regard it's also a little bit interesting because um, much to my chagrin, there's basically no seasons here. <laughs> <laughs> and actually the, the light difference doesn't even change more than 20 minutes in the year. So, uh, wow. um, I wonder, it's probably the only affluent city that I know of that's so close to the equator. So this would be, it's also, I'm curious whether there's differences in circadian rhythms and aging and seasonal effects on aging, because it's certainly differences in seasonal effects on me here. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I, I totally agree. I'm sure there are so many other factors where like what type of city you're living in. As for example, when I'm in India, there's just so much pollution, then noise pollution. It it plays yeah. it plays a role into just how healthy I feel in general versus when I'm back in the States. I, I love going to India, but after about a week, I'm just I my <laughs> <laughs> I'm tenth. <laughs> it's overwhelming. <laughs> it's a lot of people. <laughs> So um, on the socioeconomic status point, actually, you I think you have a paper from 2021 that studies um, the association of just um, housing differences in um, Singaporean populations and mm -hmm. um, how that plays a role into biological aging. Um, if you could speak to that paper. Yeah, you know, we um, let me simplify it for you. I mean, and let's take the U.S. data to start with. Um, the U.S. is a bit skewed because of the healthcare system. Uh, well, the whole government, which is principally cared about the wealthy, uh, and so the uh, life life expectancy differences in the U.S. are um, something like 15 years between the wealthiest uh, counties and the poorest counties, and wow. and it's almost all you know lifestyle. Um, bad diet uh people in marin county and california or westchester in new york they they tend to be you know take take more active exercise things like that um and uh these are all fixable things and i think that um <laughs> i don't have much confidence in the u.s government but i think that if we really did something about the poverty situation if we really started to emphasize k-12 education which is spotty at best in the United States, um, these things over the long term would have a big impact on aging because, um, you know, it's hard to blame people that don't have a lot of money. They, a lot of them, if you're a single parent, you've got three kids, you're doing one and a half jobs, and what are you going to do to feed the kids? You don't have time to cook a healthy meal, and you probably don't have the money to buy the healthy food anyway. It's become 
the cheapest food you can buy is is the worst food you can eat and so mm -hmm. this uh um there are a lot of things going wrong there singapore of course is a lot more balanced um and uh but things like health uh how the size of living condition how many people are living with you how many these all play into stress uh and uh you know i, I when i think of stress i i i I know a lot of people that are under a lot of stress that seem to age pretty well. Um, Donald Trump, you know, for all of his <laughs> bad behaviors and everything, I can't stand about him. He seems to age okay. <laughs> so, um, the um, I think it's how you process the stress, right? And so, you know, if you deal with it, you manage it, you, you don't let it like overpower your life, and you have some mindfulness approach that allows you to recognize when you're stressed. I think that's probably a very healthy approach, but certainly, you know, depending on living conditions, there can be a lot more stress in, in the environment and that 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 can cause problems too. So um, environment, look, environmental factors are huge with respect to aging and, 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 you know, just think if we could just get everybody to have some sustainable exercise program, eat a little bit healthier, quit smoking, um, keep the alcohol in moderation, um, notice I didn't say zero, uh, and, uh, and get <laughs> you enough You have your sleep. glass of wine with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and get enough sleep. I mean, this would already have a huge impact on aging. So, um, but, you know, those are hard things for people to do. And it, it's easy for, you know, people that are, you know, at the high end of the socioeconomic spectrum to say, oh, everybody should just do this and that and the other. But it's a lot easier for them to do that than people that are struggling to get by. So. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. Those are great points. Um, so spermidine is another molecule that I wanted to talk about. Um, I think you also have a paper on that, how it yeah. uh, protects uh, or induces autophagy uh, and protects against metabolic dysfunction. Uh, what are some of the studies you're, you're doing in your lab around spermidine? Yeah, so the, the spermidine data is interesting because um, another natural product, uh, but this one actually comes in food. You can't get NAD or AKG in food because um, the molecule gets used up so fast. But mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of plants that make spermidine. And actually, your gut microbiome can make spermidine too. Um, <coughs> so um, I just got tested for COVID. Don't worry, I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, the, and then you can supplement it. So, and your body can make it. So, uh, there are a lot of sources of it. Uh, and uh, people got excited about it. You know, Frank Medeo, Guido Kramer uh, did a lot of research on this because it was an autophagy activator. Uh, and of course, there's been a lot of data linking uh, enhanced autophagy to longer lifespan in worms and mice as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, again, we're trying to test a lot of different things in humans, and I kind of have a, a rule, which is if I can't get it to work in mice, I'm not going to spend a lot of money on a human study. Now, there are a lot of things I can get to work in mice that are published, and I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say that I'm right and whoever else is wrong, and maybe we're using the wrong conditions or the wrong source of the molecule, or there are lots of things that could be going wrong, but I just feel a lot better if I see something positive happening. Um, and spermidine was a, was a hit for us. It, 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 it re we didn't do a lot, the lifespan curve on a lot of mice, but the, but the small sort of study we did was consistent with what's been found that it extends lifespan. And uh, 
it was reported uh, not to have a big effect on metabolism, which is unusual for a longevity drug. And so we wanted to go back and stress the animals a little bit more. And, and sure enough, in young animals, it doesn't have that big of an effect on metabolism. But if you look at old animals, it protects them. It's definitely on our list as a molecule that we should try in, in human studies. Fantastic. Yeah. So I, I guess if some of these are just natural molecules, right, that are used by the body, say just AKGs, permidine, NAD, and um, if I'm supplementing with a lot of these, um, I know you said earlier Supplement that you're... Supplement with a few of them, please, not a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my question. I know you said you're, you're wary of people supplementing with a lot of them together. But if they're just naturally used by the body, then why should there be a concern if I'm supplementing with all of them? I'm not particularly concerned about causing toxicity or having adverse outcomes. I just think they may cancel each other out with respect to aging because that's what we think mice. And so let me give you an example theoretically of what might happen. So you have rapamycin, it turns down TOR signaling, mm -hmm. and then you add another molecule, maybe AKG, and it turns TOR signaling down even more. And now it's too low, <laughs> you know, as opposed to you need to have that pathway on at certain times as well. Uh, and so if it's too low, um, then you're do maybe doing bad things, right? So uh, until we know more mechanistically about what these things are doing, I think it's hard to predict how they're going to combine and whether it's going to be additive or they'll cancel each other out. So, But you're right, natural products tend to be safer. Um, that doesn't mean they're completely safe. Uh, if you give too much vitamin A to a mice, it's not good for them. And I, I have data to prove it. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Um, the, uh, but in general, they're safer because your body's used to using them. And so if you look at something like AKG or NAD, that gets consumed really fast. A lot of drugs become toxic because they build up in the body uh, and uh, you start getting higher and higher doses over time and that can do things you're not, you don't want them to do. It's hard to imagine getting too much AKG because it's just, it's used up so fast in chemical reactions. And so the benefit of these molecules is probably the reactions that they drive, not the labels that accumulate in the body. And of course, when it comes to drugs, you've got things that the body hasn't seen before and you have more unexpected outcomes. Now, notice I didn't say that natural products are completely safe <laughs> because that's not true. Uh, but uh, most of the molecules that are on the market that come from the aging research field um, I think that are pretty safe right now. I mean, the NAD precursors that we haven't seen a lot of adverse events or anything from that. The AKG, there's a lot of data on, um, and some of the other molecules that are out there. Um, so it's a little bit wild west right now. And, uh, like I said, I don't mind that as long as the people making these products are, are sure that they're not taking a big risk with individuals. So. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the TOR example is a great point of uh, just what you should consider when you're combining interventions, because I guess most people think, well, this one should expand, extend lifespan, health span. Why don't I just take all of them? So it, it is, um, I think it's a good framework to think about, well, some of these could be canceling each other out. Yeah, you can definitely have too much of a good thing, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. I so, wouldn't know anything about that, but maybe other people. <laughs> um, another point on AKG, um, I think you kept mentioning that the body takes it up really quickly, though. Um, but you've um, stressed the importance of taking the extended release form, at least in the studies you're conducting. Why yeah, is that I mean, so? Our data suggests that getting it to the intestine is, is beneficial. And... Uh, 
Uh, first of all, if you just take AKG, it's pretty acidic. And if you mm. take it on an empty stomach, uh, you might notice that in your esophagus as it goes down because it uh, kind of gives you a heartburn-like feeling that lasts for a few minutes. Um, so if you take the extended release version and the calcium uh, salt in an extended release version, you don't have that problem. Um, that's not really a problem. It's just an inconvenience that, that, that you don't want. Uh, but I think it's also important to get it through the, through the gut into the intestine because we think that, first of all, we think effects on microbiome may be one of the big benefits of AKG. And so we want to get it exposed to the microbiome. And this molecule can get broken down like any other. Uh, and uh, so a slow release in the intestine may be a more beneficial way to go. And I think it also has an effect on red blood cells and glutathione production. Um, what is the effect happening there? Well, this is certainly uh, one of our models for what's going on that we're testing. Um, one thing about AKG that makes it a bit difficult is that it doesn't easily go through cell membranes. And so if you put it on cells and culture, sometimes you see phenotypes, sometimes you don't. It depends on whether the cells take up the AKG or not. Uh, partly. Um, and that's true in the body too. So if you use labeled AKG, it doesn't necessarily go to every tissue. Uh, and even though we see like in animals, positive effects in muscle, we can't see the labeled AKG going to muscle. So those may be secondary effects of, of the compound, but it does go to intestine. It goes to red blood cells. It goes to the kidney. Now in the case of red blood cells, they have, you know, dysfunctional mitochondria and they still have to make glutathione. And so in those cells specifically, AKG is the principal limiting substrate for making glutathione. If you're carrying around a lot of hemoglobin and oxygen, you'd like to have a lot of glutathione around to protect from oxidative damage. And so we think one of the potential benefits is that it's driving uh, glutathione levels in red blood cells and that's protecting them uh, from reactive oxygen species. But we're also looking carefully at the kidney now and also at the in intestine. And, of course, there's nothing to say there's only one benefit to AKG. It may be doing multiple things. Uh, but we want to really tease out the primary effects from the secondary effects. And, and I, I think that that's a challenge with any of these aging, even, even rapamycin. I mean, rapamycin is an extremely specific drug. It, it really, you know, there are tens of thousands of papers on it. And there are only a couple that say that it targets something besides mTOR, you know, and, uh, the problem though is that mTOR does everything. And so you're one step removed from the same problem. You know, why is turning down mTOR good? And there's like 700 possible reasons. So um, that's the challenge with all these aging molecules. But like I said, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think we're picking the molecules that are they're targeting these nodes. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, one last question on AKG. Um, I know you mentioned you don't fully understand the mechanisms by which it works, but if you were to conjecture based on the data you have so far, what do you think could be the mechanisms? Well, uh, like I said, I think if you look at the hallmarks and pillars of aging, it affects everything we've looked at, like adult stem cell function is better and et cetera, et cetera. The microbiome looks younger. Uh, I, I, we're really interested in the microbiome though, because it certainly sees the microbiome <coughs> in the intestine. And, um, um, we see interesting alterations and we're trying to understand that. And, you know, AKG is a molecule that's used by bacteria too. So uh, it's possible that the bacteria producing something from it that is also beneficial. Um, as I said, we're interested in, in red blood cells. We're interested in the kidney. 
uh, because it, it uh, one of the hypotheses we have that we don't have full data on yet, so this could be wrong, is that it's uh, a big driver of L-carnitine production. And uh, L-carnitine has a lot of, is made in the kidney from AKG. It has lots of potential benefits. Um, but um, so we're trying to test out that hypothesis as well. So the secondary effects we can name a lot of, but we're still trying to, like, what is the, what are the first things the molecule does that trigger this response? So. Exactly. Yeah. So um, urolithin A, I think that's another molecule you're testing, and I believe that's found in pomegranates. Um, yeah. Can you explain what the longevity studies are on it and why it might be important for longevity? Well, our work um, uh, um, from Johan Ower's lab and, and others in the field that identified urolithin A, again, it's a natural product. Um, it improves mitophagy, so turnover of damaged mitochondria, uh, which is one of the pathways that's often been linked to aging, that mitochondria pick up mutations, they, they become dysfunctional with age, and the more you can turn them over for new mitochondria, the better your cells are going to be. Um, we also see mitochondrial biogenesis with it, and I'm not sure whether my, the, my, the biogenesis is first and the turnover of the bad one is second, or the turnover of the bad mitochondria is first, and that drives the biogenesis. And the challenge with urolithin is we don't really know what the target is right now. Um, so we're working really hard to find out the target of that molecule. But in cell culture, we can definitely re repeat the mitochondrial beneficial effects. We're just now doing the mouse studies on it, um, but it's been reported to extend lifespan in mice and improve muscle function. And there's a little bit of data in humans too. So I think it's another promising natural product Again, we're kind of focusing on natural products right now because even if we have the perfect drug, um, it's not clear how we're going to get that to the masses at the moment, uh, which is a different discussion. But with natural products, as long as we are careful about what claims we make, we can, you know, actually hopefully benefit help people, you know, more quickly. Absolutely, yeah. No, I'm curious to see those studies come out for all of these. Um, couple of last. Um, questions, I guess, on some of your more recent papers. One I think that was very interesting was a paper called The World Goes Bats, where you study uh, longevity yeah. in bats. Um, and of course, they're a big topic now with COVID. But you spoke about how, I guess, bats, some of them live to be 40, 41 years old. So is yeah. there something about longevity we can learn from bats? And also, could they be used as model organisms in, 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 in labs? That, well, two interesting questions. I have to tell you a little bit of the backstory on that. I had two visiting professors, uh, husband and wife, uh, Vera Gorbanova and Andrei uh, Siluanov, uh, over to visit. And uh, they were, we went to the week for a weekend in Borneo. To, and, and then they were going to go on and see orangutans. And I was going to fly back to Singapore. And then COVID was ha happening. And Singapore said, if you don't get back in the country, you know, before midnight tomorrow, you may not get back in the country. And so I came back, but Vera and Andre were going to fly back through Singapore to go back to the U.S. And so they shortened their trip in Borneo and came back and were stuck in my apartment for a few several days. So we thought, you know, let's write a review on something. And uh, maybe it's not <laughs> shocking that bats came to mind. <laughs> Vera and Andre are really experts on comparative biology. And so they study long-lived species like bowhead whales and naked mole rats and things. Uh, and so we were curious about bats and started digging into the literature. Um, there's also a scientist here in Singapore called Lin Fa Wang, who's at Duke in US. 
and uh, he has a colony of bats in, in uh, and so we're actually now, I'm working with a graduate student from his lab to try to start to test some of these mechanisms in bats. They have really interesting properties. I mean, first of all, their metabolic rate varies much more than, than most species because they sit, lie around. And if you walk around in Borneo, you can see them in the daytime under logs and just sleeping. You can get close to them and make noise. They're just, they're out, right? Wow. And then um, if you, uh, at night, they're flying hundreds of miles sometimes and their metabolism is going way up and their body temperature is going way up. And so... You know, they have this really fascinating metabolic system that allows them to quickly adapt when they change behavior. And so that's one potential thing that could be influencing their longevity. But they also have a different innate immune system. So their Seagas sting pathway is altered. And that's one of the reasons they're such a danger to us because rather than, you know, our body will go to great lengths to either uh, remove COVID-19 or influenza or die trying. <laughs> and really it's the inflammatory cytokine storm um, that often kills people in these viral infections, right? But the bats mm -hmm. are like, ah, it's okay, they can stay. <laughs> and so they, they, they keep low levels of these viruses around for a long time. And that means when somebody gets bitten by a bat or decides they want to eat a bat or something, it's a, it's a danger because... Uh, the viruses can be transmitted. But it also may be that these defects in innate immunity, or I wouldn't even call them defects, these differences in innate immunity may be important for the longevity of the bats too because this innate immune system drives cell senescence, it drives inflammation, and, and so the bats may be able to avoid a lot of that. So we're just beginning to do actual research. There are other scientists around the world working on this, not a lot, and then... Um, and then there was another battle trying to get the editor to let us use that title, but uh, we eventually <laughs> <won> that. <laughs> it, it is a funny title. Yeah. That's interesting, though. Can, can so have we ever considered using them in labs for longevity studies, or would they not be a good model organism because well, they have all these protective mechanisms already? There's very few um, colonies of bats in research laboratories. You know, it's it, most of the studies are done on capturing bats in the wild, and that you can learn something from that. But you know, it's nice to have them in colonies too. For instance, it's not so easy to age a bat. How do you tell how old, how old a bat is if you just capture it in the wild? Whereas if you have it in the lab, you can, you know, this data, right? So, um, I think there is room for these, for naked mole rats especially, and other species. I haven't figured out how to keep a colony of whales yet, but we're working on it. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a big ocean around us. Maybe we can think of something. But uh, yeah, there, I think the comparative biology of aging, I was always a little bit skeptical because if you find something that lives a long time, of course you can find different pathways. You know the the differences in key pathways that might explain the longevity but so what how do you test it mm -hmm. um and people did a lot of comparative cell culture studies but i think those are a bit limited because it's hard to study aging in cell culture even in human cells or mouse cells because we're not sure what we're looking at um and uh but more recently i like especially vera's lab they've started to find specific pathways in naked mole rats and then engineer those pathways into the mice and show that the mice live longer. And so that's exciting because that's telling you that that pathway difference is important for the aging of a, 
of a species we know a lot about. So um, I think as studies like that continue, it's going to really emphasize the importance of this comparative biology. Look, there, there's a lot to be learned. And I think that the, the best guess right now is when you look at these different long-lived species, they, they didn't all choose the same way to get the long life. They chose different ways. And uh, so there's probably something to be learned from each of them. Yeah, no, that's super exciting. Um, so speaking of organisms and model organisms for lab studies, um, I think you also wrote about yeast being a model organism. Why do you think that's the case? Well, you 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 have to agree with me here because I started out doing yeast aging. So if you, <laughs> you don't think yeast are relevant? We're ending the show with them right now. <laughs> um, well, look, when I started in graduate school in Lenny Garanti's lab, um, you know, th this lab uh, was very productive, but they didn't do aging before I got there. It was my, it was I my as a graduate student myself and another graduate student. Uh, Nick, Nick Ostriaco, who later became a priest. That's, we don't have time to go into that. <laughs> He's a great guy. The, um, you know, I like yeast because at the time I felt like we don't know that much about aging. These are single-celled organisms and we know how they age. There's two different ways they can age depending on how you treat them, replicative or chronologic. And, you know, I thought this is a tractable system. We can figure out some way to do screens to find mutants that live longer uh, and if I just understand yeast aging, it may have nothing to do with human aging, but at least it's a paradigm for what aging can be evolutionarily. Um, and, you know, many famous people in the field at the time said it's really stupid to study aging in yeast because um, you'll never learn anything about humans. And, and I have to say, we're not the first lab to do it, but we, there were only a couple when we started. Uh, and... Um, you know, one of those uh, people that told us we were idiots is now studying yeast aging at Calico, but I won't say who his name is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so we got to the Sirtuin pathway, we got to the mTOR pathway, um, and surprisingly, a lot of these pathways are conserved in humans. And so I think that what you're really doing there is studying the cellular aging component of aging, and uh, that there's a big role for us too. Um, there's certainly, you don't get every aspect of human aging from yeast, uh, but, um, um, it, it certainly has, if you, there's conservation for sure. And so you get candidate pathways that are affecting human aging that you can get, then go test in higher species and you can get them really quickly and cheaply. So, and I, I believe you're also just advocating for more basic science, maybe through studying yeast model organisms as well. And I found that point really interesting because you're right that there seems to be a lot of, well, there's so much, there's more private money in the field and there seems to be more funding yeah. for translational studies. Yeah. Uh, and I actually wrote, wrote about this a few weeks ago that basic science, I guess, seems to be getting killed or not getting enough funding. So yeah, yeah what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, but first of all, I'm happy the private sector is interested in aging. I think translation is important and I'm all for mm -hmm. work. I think we academic private sector partnerships are probably the way to go because we both have something to offer that the other one doesn't. Uh, and uh, that's great. But even funding agencies, you know, even the NIH, you know, has gotten more translational, focus less, a little bit less on basic science. Uh, I think that's happened in Singapore and other countries as well. And it's a big mistake in the long run because it's those basic discoveries that catalyze translation. And to think we know everything we need to know to like, make a perfect human right now is a 
incredible statement in, in, in naivety. <laughs> naivety. Yeah. So I, I think that um, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we should be doing the basic science. And by the way, it's not all, all about treating disease. It, you know, I, I think fundamentally we, we want to understand how we're made, what, what, you know, what, what, how we're created, how we age, how we get sick, how we stay healthy, you know, what makes us tick. And uh, I like, I got into aging because I was just curious about aging. At the time I wasn't particularly motivated to make people live longer. I didn't even think about it that much. I was predominantly interested in just under, here's a phenomenon that happens to nearly every species. And we know almost nothing about it. There's, something's wrong. We, should, we need to understand this. And I still feel that way. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm excited about the idea of, have, of some of these discoveries being translated to humans to extend health span and give people happier, longer lives. That's great. But uh, I, I think it's sad when I see these agencies that are, seem to be downplaying basic science right now. And I, I think part of that stems from just a anti-intellectual science movement that's happening in the US and it's driven by politics as much as anything. The idea that scientists are somehow elitists that, that don't you know, understand how everybody else functions. And, and uh, I, um, academic science is important and uh, uh, most of the people in this field are really trying to just understand how things work and that can't be a bad thing. You know? so. As as Feynman would say, the pleasure of finding things out. Yeah, I, I think that's it's it's hard to describe that, and and that's a little bit why I I have mixed feelings about AI, you know, because you know when I was starting out doing research in yeast, we would come up with an elegant experiment, we have a hypothesis, and it would be right or wrong, and then we feel like we really learned something about the mechanism of aging and. And now we we throw a lot of data at the wall and you know have some computer that organizes it in some random fashion and keeps trying different iterations. And at the end of the day, it comes out with some model that is probably better than the ones we were generating with our <laughs> hypotheses, but it's less satisfying because you still don't you're like, okay, that, what does that mean? You know, and uh, even if you can if you can apply it, that's great, but that still isn't necessarily telling us what causes aging. So, I hope we can figure out how to get more mechanistic insights from this big data, right? That still hasn't, it, I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I think it's, it's, it hasn't been as fast as I would have hoped. So. Yeah, but I, I think what you're saying is also basic sciences for asking some of these questions and going down the rabbit hole and just figuring out how things work. Yeah. And, and frankly, AI, can't doesn't can't get us there right now because it, it, we still haven't figured out how a human creativity works so we can't model that into ai and that's a huge part yeah. of just basic science is human creativity yeah. and curiosity yeah and and look you know the it's serendipity has the first big discovery i made in yeast at, at mit which led to the sirtuins um the well sirtuins have been identified but it led to the link between sirtuins and aging um, it was serendipity. <laughs> we, it was an accident, but accidents are great things in the lab because if you, if you get some result you weren't expecting or you, something happened, you, you did wrong and it got a different result, you're the only one in the world that knows that. And sometimes there are important clues to what's going on. And so it was really, 
I won't say luck. I think we were doing good experiments and we had our eyes open. And when something unexpected happened, we took advantage of it. But mm -hmm. we certainly didn't set out to go down that path. And, and that's why I think that it's also bad when you say, all right, we're going to do basic science, but we're only doing it on Alzheimer's disease, you know, or something like that. I need There's nothing wrong with Alzheimer's. I just use that as an example. But if you spend $300 million on, on science of Alzheimer's, you're missing the fact that the person studying brain connectivity, you know, two universities over that didn't even think about Alzheimer's may make the biggest discovery that leads to Alzheimer's. So um, we, we're trying, I think the funding agencies are really engineering that, that serendipity component out of the system. And, and that's not a good thing either because discoveries come from left field as much as they come from where are they supposed to come from anyway? <laughs> yeah, everybody right. says it comes from left field. I mean, where is right field better? I've never, never mind. I, <laughs> I, I, I diverge. <laughs> right. No, anyone could be asking the questions. That's a great point. Um, all right. I think we've covered a lot. Is there anything else that maybe I didn't ask you and you wanted to touch upon? No, I just, just to reiterate that it's a really fun time because, you know, people have been trying to slow aging for, about 2,500 years. And uh, um, I feel like this is the generation that, that it's gonna really happen. I mean, you can argue it's already happening, but, but really most of the lifespan increases are by removing extrinsic, aging extrinsic causes of mortality. And, and, and now I think we're really targeting the aging pathway. So I think there'll be hurdles along the way. I don't think it'll all be smooth sailing and some of the interventions we think will work won't. But I think some of them will too. And uh, I'm really interested to see what the future brings because I, I think that it's going to be fun if we can really alter human health span. I am too. And I'm very optimistic as well. Thank you Great. so much for your time today. Anytime. Hi again, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode and learned from it. If so, please show some support by subscribing to my YouTube channel, Live Longer World liking the video, sharing the podcast, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to dive into these topics further and receive extensive show notes and transcripts from each episode, you can sign up to be a premium subscriber at livelongerworld.com forward slash premium. To be notified of upcoming podcast releases, sign up on my website at livelongerworld.com, follow me on Twitter at livelongerworld and Instagram at Longevity Future. Thanks for listening, stay in good health, and I'll catch you soon.